very pleased to have Mike Davey here. I'm not going to give a history of Mike Davey's time in Sri Ratna, but it goes back quite a long way. And for nearly 20 years, she worked in team-based right livelihood for Windhorse Evolution Shop. Mm. Quite a lot of that time, one of the directors, the financial director. When she left that, she had a little bit of time off and then went to Tara Lotra. She's been there for the last six years. Most of them, I think she more or less immediately became chairperson at Tara Lotra. A lot of you will know Tara Lotra as one of the main retreat centres for women in England. Plays a very important part. I know Mike Sajavi best through the Buddhafield Total Immersion Retreats. She's been on probably as many of them as anybody, actually. She's one of the most regular people on the month-long trips. She's also co-led some of them with myself. She's particularly fantastic to go for a walk with. Because you go for a walk with Mike Sajavi in the countryside, she will tell you what all the different birds are. She can identify all the bird song and stuff. I find that very impressive and very enjoyable. I don't know if this will come out in this particular conversation, but she's got quite a vivid internal life, a very strong connection with the natural world, but also quite a strong connection with a kind of inner world. Those two, I think, kind of interpenetrate in quite interesting ways. You might get a sense of that. So anyway, I'm very pleased to have her here. As with all our guests, I've asked Mike to David to bring something along to share. So I'm going to hand over to Mike to David to start us off in our conversation. Thanks, Paramanda. Thanks. Lovely introduction. So I've got a poem to kick us off. It's not a poem I knew before about 10 days ago. I just stumbled across it and it kind of lodged in my throat a bit. I think it might be quite well known, but I didn't know it. So it's by W.S. Merwin. It's called Thank You. Listen, with the night falling, we are saying thank you. We are stopping on the bridges to bow from the railings. We are running out of the glass rooms with our mouths full of food to look at the sky and say thank you. We're standing by the water, looking out in different directions, back from a series of hospitals, back from a mugging, after funerals. We're saying thank you. After the news of the dead, whether or not we knew them, we're saying thank you. Looking up from tables, we are saying thank you in the culture up to its chin in shame, living in the stench it has chosen, we're saying thank you. Over telephones, we're saying thank you. In doorways and in the backs of cars and in elevators, remembering wars and the police at the back door and the beatings on the stairs, we're saying thank you. In the banks that use us, we're saying thank you. With the crooks in office, with the rich and fashionable unchanged, we go on saying thank you. Thank you. With the animals dying around us, our lost feelings, we are saying thank you. 
with the forests falling faster than the minutes of our lives. We're saying thank you, with the words going out like cells of a brain and the cities growing over us like the earth. We're saying thank you faster and faster with nobody listening. We're saying thank you. We're saying thank you and waving, dark though it is. Well, thank you. I've never heard that poem actually before. And such a strong piece of work. I'm not surprised when I heard you say it's stuck in your throat. I mean, I'm, I'm a bit inclined to say, well, we'll just leave it there, you know. <laughs> That's enough, really. Yeah. You know. I mean, when was that written? Either a while ago. It was the 80s sometime, I'm not quite, maybe 88 or something. It seems particularly poignant, doesn't it, at the moment? Mm. I kept reading it and it just kept being relevant in different ways. And, yeah. Mm. Well, I don't really like analysing poems, but I suppose the question that comes from it, we're just saying thank you for life. Is that what you call it? Well, I think what I responded to, the thank you, was regardless of what's happening and how things are going, mm. here we are in this most extraordinary world. Mm. And actually the only thing you can do is say thank you in some ways. Or like there's no reason ever to stop saying thank you. Or there's something about appreciating, even as things disappear, mm. just that sense of deep appreciation. Gratitude, isn't it? Having, mm. I mean, it's such an interesting thing, isn't it? Because if you lose that sense of gratitude for your life, it's a very dark place, isn't it? Mm. A couple of years ago, the swallows stopped coming to Taraloka, probably for the first time since the property was built, I imagine. Mm. I was quite depressed. It made that spring really difficult. But I think I just thought, well, actually, it was back to this sense of just need to appreciate it because actually I don't know if this is the last time the swallows will come or the last time the curlews will come back or the last time the ash tree up by the bridge, which has got dieback, is going to be there. So, yeah, I think that's what I mean, that appreciation, even as things disappear. Yeah, everything disappears, doesn't it, in the end? Mm -hmm. I think there's that way of reflecting on impermanence, isn't there? Associate it with the Dalai Lama, so it must come from the Tibetan tradition about the end of something being in its arising, noticing that. Mm. Well, it's quite hard to kind of move on from there in a certain sort of way, isn't it? Because it's straight into what seems to be at the core, both of our Buddhist practice, but also the core of humanity in a way, you know, what it means to be human really when you say now i'm thinking well we don't last very long do we and when you're saying we don't know if the swifts are going to be back or you don't know if the ash tree is going to make it through well we don't know if we're going to make it through do we mm. i mean i wonder i've wondered this before if our inability to really grasp our own impermanence or our own mortality makes it difficult for us to really appreciate that on a planetary or a social level, you know, on a bigger level. I wonder what the relationship between that is, you know, the way in denial about our own mortality. How does that bleed across to denial about planetary extinction or whatever, you know? Well, we are in denial about our own mortality, but also kind of obsessed about it. I wonder whether the sort of almost our, our self-obsession is what blocks that understanding that everything else too is going. 
I've been thinking about this lately. I can't help feeling that we're in a very narcissistic kind of culture now. And we don't really have this perspective, do we? You know, like the old Celtic idea that everything's done with the seven generations in mind or whatever, you know. Mm. We don't really seem to be that conscious of being within of ancestral tradition in a way. It's our lives, isn't it? And I wonder how difficult that makes it for us, how atomized we are in a way. And I don't know if you've got any feelings about this, but do you think meditation offers a way of overcoming? It might be too strong, but at least mitigating against that kind of narcissistic tendency that we all have. Well, I say we all have. I shouldn't say we all have. I don't know. No. <laughs> it's probably not unreasonable, is it? I mean, at some point, narcissism just fades into self-obsession, just the fixed idea of self, doesn't it? It's on the same spectrum. Meditation does have something to offer. And also, I mean, we're all capable of using it in a way that just almost reinforces that narcissism, aren't we? You can use meditation and become super sensitive to everything, but in a very self-referential way. I mean, I noticed this with myself, how I can meditate in a way that sort of feels like it becomes more insular or it's more closed off or I can open out. In a way, it's the context that I imagine myself meditating in that feels like it's an important part of the practice. Yeah, the significance I give it, I suppose. No, I'm so pleased to hear you say that because increasingly I think it is a practice or it's an essential part of the practice. We always meditate in a real place, don't we? We meditate in the real world. And if we're not meditating in the real world, what are we actually doing? Is it some kind of fantasy thing, you know? Mm. I seem to be quite obsessed by Earth at the moment. And something I've been playing around with is just understanding or reminding myself that the Earth that I'm sitting on is alive. Mm. It's alive, rather than a thing upon which... <laughs> I live my life. It's, it's something that's alive. So when I sit down to meditate, I'm a living being connected to a living earth. So this is something I imagine my meditation affects the earth and that the earth offers something to the meditation. You know, there's a sort of dialogue that mm. could be possible. I mean, obviously not spoken, but more sort of an energetic dialogue. And I sometimes wonder, you know, as you get little bits of bliss or rapture arising in meditation, I just consider that I wonder what effect that has on the earth. I wonder whether the earth feels that. And then it can become a sort of offering almost. Maybe one can go so far as to say, well, you're just the earth manifesting in a particular way. Mm. I mean, when we look at a tree or something, it seems quite clear, doesn't it? To me, you know, trees very clearly are manifesting from earth, aren't they? I mean, literally doing that, aren't they? Are we so different? I mean, I don't know if Earth is quite the right word, but we're just life manifesting in a particular way, aren't we? And this thinking it's our life, this is my life. It's not quite right, is it? Not your life, is it? It's life manifesting as you. We have to hold a, a sort of koan, don't we? Because, you know, in a way it is your life and your agency and you choose. And also it's not as well. And they're both true. No, that's true, yeah. The only bit I'm saying maybe about it is that we choose. I've never quite sorted that out in my own mind, mm. how much we choose anything. But, you know, we've got free will until we make a choice. We've only got free will as projected into the future. Once you've made a decision, we're just mm. 
immediately. We couldn't have done anything else. Mm. That doesn't really make sense, does it? Well, maybe we shouldn't go down the huge hole of free will and <laughs> we'll never come out. <laughs> Imaginatively, we can't free will. Have Experientially, that's what it feels like. Whether that's the case or not, maybe we don't go there. You were talking about the Earth as a living thing, and I wonder if you've got anything about how that's personified for you, or how we can personify that in a way that connects us more strongly with it. It's quite a big question, isn't it? It's something I've been very interested in for quite a long time now, is just this whole area of animism and uh, what difference it might make if we relate to the world as alive, the whole of it. And in a way, it's more of a question for me, more of a point of reflection. Sangaracha talks about that very interestingly, but kind of briefly when he looks at the element section, Satipatthana Sutta. And in a way, I feel like it just really could do with unpacking. But I suppose the issue is how do you develop? It's almost like we're trying to do something without any teachers because culturally we're so cut off. How do you cultivate a sense of everything being alive? I mean, I'm taking it as read that I think it's really important that we do. And I think the damage that we do is a reflection of a sort of dysfunctional relationship. And I'd see animism as a more functional relationship. I guess this whole area of personification, it's like the psyche does what it wants, doesn't it? I think it can and does personify, but I don't know whether you can make it happen. So there's something there for me where it feels like it personifies. I definitely have a strong sense of, say, Gaia the goddess, which would be a very traditional figure for the entirety of the world. I mean, my shrine is basically an image of the world from space. So there's something that's very significant there for me. And actually just even mentioning that image, probably very familiar with it, it's often called the blue marble image, a sort of composite image of the earth that NASA put together. Quite often bring that into retreats. And it's interesting because immediate, it's like it almost changes the atmosphere people are immediately in relationship with it. Nobody can be neutral about that image. Makes me wonder whether we need to personify it. Actually, now we've got that image. We've only had it for 50 years, haven't we? Yeah, yeah. Was that really a moving little documentary where they interview all these different astronauts and they're all talking about their experience of looking at the Earth from outer space and very moving little film. I think in why you're talking, of course, you know, you're at Tower Local, aren't you? You're in that realm, aren't you? That's a personification, isn't it? Certainly within Tri Ratna, Tara, as a Bodhisattva, has to some extent become the earth goddess. Well, I don't, it's not official, is it? But certainly on Buddhafield retreats, quite often we relate to her as if she is a divine feminine of earth, don't we? Mm. I think that might be quite inevitable in a way. My understanding of her origins anyway come from Dridha, the Indian earth goddess. If a mythological being can have a historical origin, she comes out of the earth goddess. And in a way, certainly for me, I can't really differentiate her classic form is green. It's life, isn't it? A while ago, I learned about Hildegard of Bingham. She talked about viriditas. She talked about this sort of sacred greening or sort of divine life. I can't help feeling she's talking about something similar. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. It does seem that the more mystic end of most traditions have a lot of resonance with each other. Mm. Dasa was talking about your love of trees. And this might sound a ridiculous question, but no, I'm sure it won't sound ridiculous to you. I mean, do you ever feel that you have a direct communication with trees? 
I don't know how to answer that. I don't know whether I do. I don't feel I'm the sort of person who has that sort of sensitivity. And yet I keep coming back to the same things. So something in me does. <laughs> I mean, partly I did these meditating with tree videos. Partly it was for my benefit to sit under trees and just see what it was like. I don't know whether I have that with trees specifically, but I keep coming back to the earth. There's something that communicates through the earth and maybe it communicates up through living beings. There's some sort of power, isn't there, that comes through. And in a way, I, I suppose when I think about my practice, I think, well, it's both an offering, but maybe it's an expression of something else. I mean, it's sort of to do with me, but it's sort of not really. No. And in a way, I'd see more that there's, well, maybe an actuality of, of a world that's awakened. I mean, it is awakening. It is awakening. It's, it's a mess and it's awakening. <laughs> it's got to express itself somehow. You and I and everyone else are part of that. Maybe only a small part. Quite small, yeah. Mm. I mean, compared to fungus or something. Well, they're basically in charge, yeah. <laughs> That's something that delighted me reading Merlin Sheldrake's book about fungi a few months ago, which is a delight. I'd recommend that book. It's called Entangled Life. After a while, you realise no matter how much damage we do through our foolishness, we will never kill fungi. I was not so delighted by that. Apparently, some live in Chernobyl Power Station. They just yeah. learnt to feed on radioactivity. It's so cool. <laughs> it's so interesting, isn't it? We know this, of course, but all these different layers of life, isn't it? We're on a big scale, aren't we? You know, I've been quite taken by Timothy Merton's work. One of his big things is to try and deconstruct the human being. Saying, well, of course, human beings are much more than just human beings. So this whole world of microbes and all sorts of things. It's so interesting, isn't it? I'm always coming back to this image of a Buddha sitting under a tree. I mean, it's easy to see, isn't it? When we see a big tree, all trees, but particularly if we see like a big oak tree or something, it's so obvious that's a world unto itself, isn't it? All the insects and the birds and everything. We're just like that, aren't we? We're both ourselves. We're both discreet in a sense, but in another sense, totally undiscreet. And the human part of us is a relatively small part of us, in a sense. Mm, mm. We're an ecosystem, aren't we? You're an ecosystem oh. and I'm an ecosystem of all sorts of different things. I was reading recently, we've each got our own little microbial cloud around us that's quite personal to us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we don't realise it, but we walk in this sort of fog of microbes. I think it's just this whole area. We're just not what we think we are. On so many levels, we're not what we think we are. We're not individuals, we're ecosystems and we're not separate we're participative in and i think something that interests me buddhism's still very anthropocentric and i've got a bit of a thing at the moment about how it would be the human equivalent of the individual getting beyond the self i think humanity needs to get beyond itself a bit and over yeah it needs to get over itself and actually we need to decenter ourselves we keep placing ourselves central and we're not in all sorts of ways we're not I think that's what trees do, actually. It's one of the things trees do. You know, you're just with a big tree and it's just been around so much longer than you. And it decenters you. Yeah. It takes the centre, doesn't it? The Buddha, when he's sitting under the Bodhi tree, it was the centre of the world. And it's like the tree of life, the world tree stands at the centre of the world. And you come into relationship with it, but you're not that. No, it's very clear, it seems to me, in Buddhism, the tree is prior to the Buddha, isn't it? Mm. You know, in a sense, the tree is this uh, symbol, you know, 
and the Buddha takes his place under that tree. The tree itself is an explanation of the Dharma, if you like, the Buddhist teachings. In the, symbolically, you know, it breaks down the dualism between form and formlessness. Mm. I thought you were going to say earth and sky then, but say well, more would, about form and formlessness. I could have said that. I could well have, mm. I would normally probably say earth and sky, but I think these days I also think, well, they stand for form and formlessness. Mm. And they also stand for how form becomes formless and how emptiness becomes form. But that's another story, isn't it? Well, maybe what I was saying about going beyond a sort of anthropocentrism, I mean, in a way it's moving from a certain form to something more formless, isn't it? But anything that moves you from something fixed to something open, Mm. that movement, I suppose, is something we're working with the whole time, isn't it? The whole time, yeah, potentially, yeah. Every moment we've got that choice, haven't we? Mm. Sort of close down or centre ourselves. I suppose for me these days, when I'm thinking about meditation, I'm thinking that most of us in a sort of industrialised West, we're centred here, aren't we? We're kind of centred in our cranium, or somehow we experience ourselves as homunculus and it's in our skull, <laughs> like they used to be in that comic. But actually, it's in the wrong place. It needs to be in the heart. Mm. You know, people talk about getting rid of the self. Well, that's another story. I mean, I don't even know what that means. You were talking about decentering ourselves. I think that's true, but I think perhaps it's also about recentering. If we center in the heart, that naturally tends towards opening. But I think if we're up here, if we're centered up here, that naturally tends towards the opposite, I think, closing mm. up. I'm not saying you can't have a mental insight. You can, but it's very hard for it not to be immediately appropriated, I think. Mm. It's your idea, isn't it? You have a really strong emotion. It just blows that out water, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a couple of thoughts I'm having. One is you're describing a movement in the body, but Mm. in a way I'm also describing the same movement sort of externally or from the self to the world. You know, we're talking about movement from the head to the body, from the head, which is the intelligent human being, to the world, to the body. It's the same movement. And then the other thing that was coming up for me was just around assimilation of insight, I suppose, of understanding, which I guess is something I've been thinking about for years now, is how do you ground understanding into the body and into the world? You know, how do you take some sort of insight and move it into the cells of your being, into the soma, or out into the fabric of the world? How do you do that? Well, you know, you sit under a tree, don't you? That's the image we're given, isn't it? We sit under a tree. That's how we do it. We sit under a tree. I mean, in a way, that sounds much too simplistic, but I actually more and more think probably for most people, the most useful thing they can do as meditators is to learn to really relax the lower body Mm. and make a proper connection with earth. And somehow I think that coming back to what you were talking about is you're actually in an active imaginative energetic interchange with the world Mm. it's a felt thing isn't it it becomes a felt thing rather than an idea i think you can actually feel 
in your body whether it's literally true whatever that means i don't know but it's psychically true it's psychically possible isn't it i mean i've had this experience myself i think it's psychically possible to communicate with the vegetative intelligence of the earth yeah there is this kind of vegetative nervous system and quite often it is done through a certain personification of that you enter it for a personification. See, this bothers me slightly with Buddhism. Most of our personifications are floating about in the sky, aren't they? Mm. That's what I was going to say, actually, just as you were talking. I was thinking that connection downwards I find really interesting. And yet if I think of most of the Buddhist meditations that I'm familiar with, I mean, there's the lovely Bodhicitta practice, which is a heart opening out to the world. But then there's a lot of relationship with the vertical sense of blessings coming down. But that sense of blessings rising up or something rising up from below doesn't seem to be there so much. And I was kind of interested in something I was wanting to ask you, because I know you're very interested in shamanism. I suppose I think of that as the sort of area. Is that how you see it? And is that your experience? What is the interest there for you? God, I don't know how I can sum it up, really. I mean, it's not an intellectual thing, you know, though... I could say something about it conceptually, but I fear it opens up a possibility of a direct dialogue with the organic world. Mm. That plants have psyche, I suppose. I believe that plants have psyche. I think certain shamanic practices give you access to that. Mm. Invite that psyche in that there can be a direct communication. Of course, you can't conceptualise it, really. Once you move into that, you lose it. But experientially, you can be in communication with the psyche of plants or earth. Mm. Of course, the Greek mystery of the shamanic, you know, the Delphic mm. oracle, that's coming up from underneath. That's coming up into the body from underneath. That's why she sat on a tripod, isn't it? The oracle energy, it actually comes up the vagina so we think of shamanic people as mongolian or peru but the greek tradition was a shamanic tradition really you know pre-scratic anyway i think now we try and get to that for art don't we perhaps more but you know people want direct experience they want to taste the world mm. want to digest and be digested by it in a way I suppose the question for me is, because I mentioned assimilation earlier, and you're talking about digestion, talking about something similar is how Buddhism in the West does that. Because I suppose I still feel like we're trying to find out how it does that. I think maybe there is some sort of interchange that needs to happen between something maybe more shamanic or pagan based in this land, in this culture, in our bodies. Or punk, even. Yeah, like punk rock and that's a shamanic tradition popping up in the modern world i've never heard anyone say that before oh yeah definitely <laughs> music's very shamanic in a way isn't it yeah classical music again tends to be a bit up there doesn't it mm. i mean the thing was punk was participatory shamanic practice is participatory we don't participate now we go and watch music don't we mm. you know, we're not doing it anymore. So it's a different thing. I want to come back to what you were saying because I think it's so important. And I don't know, like me, the thing that attracted me to the Western Buddhist order when we were the Western Buddhist order was Sangharachis' vision of finding a Western expression for Buddhism. 
Mm. And personally, and perhaps this is related to what you're saying, I think we're just at the beginning of that process. Mm. We're just making little baby steps. What we've got to be careful about is we don't shut it down. If, you know, we've all sorted out now. We haven't even started. Okay, yeah. even at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I think that's partly what I'm trying to do with my little nature videos. I don't know whether it works, but one of the things I was thinking is just even this whole process of translating our understanding of Buddhism into the world around us. Often, what I hear people do is they try to get things to represent other things. So, a yellow daffodil kind of represents the color of the yellow Buddha Ratnasambhava and therefore means generosity. And I suppose I just sort of think if we kind of got more intimate with the world around us as it is, we wouldn't need to do all of those steps. You just see a tree and you'd think awakening, you'd yellow and think love or whatever, you know? Yeah. Yellow, a yellow daffodil is generosity, isn't it? Well, that's it. It is in itself. So that's what I mean about things not representing things, but they are in themselves. And in that way of thinking, then actually things become sacred. Yeah. They're yeah. already sacred. And you notice the sacred dimension of them. You notice their qualities rather than have to have them stand for something else that is sacred. Yeah, that's so important. We haven't got time to talk about it, but the relationship between insight and beauty, yeah. I think it's so important, isn't it? It's not an um, optional extra beauty. Mm. Like that poem you started with, we now had a certain beauty in it, didn't it? Can you have gratitude without beauty? I don't think so, can you? That's the question. Anyway, I'm getting a bit lost there because I don't want to lose your point about that whole thing that, a flower doesn't stand for something, does it? It can be made to stand for something, but actually it's the actual quality of the flower. Fantastic. Thank you so, so much. I really have enjoyed talking to you, actually. Now. Oh, it's lovely, yeah. We'll just scratch the surface a little bit there. But yeah, lovely. we have, yeah. Lovely to speak to you, really. Mm, likewise, yeah. Keep up the great work. And you're in the realm of Tara, you know, you're in the loka, in Tara loka, you know. Perfect, isn't it? Well, I'm very lucky. I'm You've very got, lucky. you got it all there. you got the bog, haven't you? Yeah, it's a peat bog, yeah. And just to check in, why have the swallows not come back? Do we know? Well, they've been in population decline since the 70s, and they're going to have problems if there's any big shifts in conditions. And a couple of years ago, we had some quite bad conditions for mm. swallows, and I just don't think any of the ones that were here made it back. I think they all died. The same one come back to the same place every year. Yeah, so I think if you lose them, that's it. Unless they have a big boom year and there's some overspill. But I think we've lost them for good. It's just awful. It's gutting. I started off after that poem feeling quite tearful and talk about the swallows there again. I feel like I'm welling up a bit. There's so much love needed in the world, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, so you just end up with a thank you, don't you? <laughs> we say thank you. Lovely to talk to you, Paramanda. Yeah, bye. Mm.